Allyship. Supportive association with another person or group. Hello and welcome to the Boss Podcast episode 105. This week we are tackling the importance of being an ally to gender diverse people with B. Pagels Minor. The Business of Software podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Allyship is a lifelong process of building relationships based on trust, consistency and accountability with marginalised individuals or groups of people. It's a key component in building a sustainable and diverse culture in your organisation. It is not just tweeting once a year or adding a rainbow to your logo for the month. In this talk, B. Pagels Minor will help you understand a little bit more about what allyship might look like and how you can actually be a great ally in your workplace. B. has been on the podcast before, back in episode 44, as they discussed the understanding agile development through the medium of cake. Happy listening. Thank you for having me back. Uh, you know, I told Mark when we were coming up to this that my first talk at uh, BOS in 2018 was one of my favorite talks I've ever done. And it, it was the best talk I'd ever done up to that point. So, you know, you guys really got me going. But today we're going to talk about how to be allies to gender diverse people, essentially. And to a little bit of background for me, just to give you a little context of why I might be a good person to have this conversation. So first and foremost, I am a trans non-binary human. Um, my pronouns are they, them, theirs. But also before I got into tech, I actually was a historian. So that's why I trained as a trans historian. Um, I, I spent the majority of my life in nonprofits, specifically nonprofits that do LGBTQ plus work. And so this work has always been something that's super fascinating and interesting to me. And now I get to do it as something that, you know, is a passion of mine is to teach people a little bit more about gender diverse identities. So today, Today, we're going to start off um, and we're going to talk a little bit uh, about the, the goals of this talk, which is really just to kind of give you a little bit more context um, to, to help you understand a little bit more of what allergy might, might look like, but then also specifically how you can actually be a great ally in your workplace. Um, especially, I know that all of us are business people. We have companies it's like, how do we actually do this? So we're gonna go through a bit of history. We're gonna debunk some gender assumptions. We're gonna talk about intersectionality. We're gonna talk about how to actually be an ally and how to make your workplace great for TGNB people. So one of my main goals for this talk is to understand why this particular screen is terrible. It's totally terrible. Um, so it's actually really funny. Um, I have been a product manager for the majority of my career and I was working in a company called cars.com. And at cars.com, we were like, one of my particular ownership areas was this idea of buyer personalization. And so as a part of buyer personalization, we started having these conversations about what do we actually need to know about a human to be able to personalize for the you know, personalized information for them. And so one of the categories that we came up with was this idea of gender. And the first screen that my designer came up with was this screen that simply says male, female, or other. And I remember at the time, you know, being a trans non-binary person and being like, well, that doesn't really make sense. And so then, you know, after a bunch of conversations, a bunch of research, we actually kind of came up with this list, right? And so this list is much more comprehensive 
of the different gender identities that actually exist in the, the world, right? You have female, you have male, you have transgender female, you have transgender male, gender non-conforming, not listed. And that not listed, by the way, it's super important because on top of all of these identities, current research actually tells us that there's about 25 currently documented genders. And when I say, you know, in quotes, currently documented, that is very significant because the gender diverse community is one of the least researched areas in the world when you think about, you know, um, gender, right? So like, you know, there are a bunch of different fluctuating numbers. I know even as someone who's a part of this community, I, I read so many interesting articles and posts by gender diverse people every single day where I'm just like, oh, that's like a slightly nuanced way to perceive your gender that I don't think is on this list yet. But at the same time, I also know that 25 different types of genders is completely intimidating, right? So, you know, one of the things that I always like to remember when I think about this huge spectrum of gender identities is that literally people are born every single solitary day who are genetic anomalies, right? So these are people who are not just XX chromosome or XY chromosome, they could be XXY chromosome, they could be XYY chromosome. So we know that this is a naturally occurring phenomenon that allows for a very large spectrum of humans and how they actually, you know, how they actually have their gender or their, how they actually have their sex exist in our world. So where the heck did this all come from, right? So there's actually this really, really great um, gender, um, this gender researcher named Gregory Bullock. And he talked about the fact that this notion of gender that we currently have, which is primarily man and woman, is a very, very recent phenomenon, right? So this quote here is talking about the fact that before there was actually implementation of Euro European binaries, you know, you have examples of the Dagaba tribe in Ghana, Ghana and Burkina Faso and the Ivory Coast, where they actually determined the, the gender identity differently. What they would actually do is they would look at the energy of the person. And then based on the energy of the person, they would say, well, that's a, you know, um, a man or this is a woman or some other term that you know, I'm sure that has been lost to memory at this point. Um, and in fact, you know, some people would wait until a child was of the age of five before they would think about any specific gender. And in fact, this is a very common concept, right? So like you have these examples through history, for instance. Um, and you know, in Sumerian and Akkadian texts there 4,500 years ago, they, tr they documented what they call, what researchers later call transgender or transvestite priests named Gala. And in Sumerian culture, the Gala were actually considered some of the most uh, important, most uh, sacred beings in their community. Also 4,500 years ago, there's the, a grave of the first transgender person in Europe. Um, there are depictions of art in the Mediterranean from 9,000 to 3,700 years ago in ancient Greece and Rome and Phrygia of these priests who existed. Um, you even have this uh, Roman emperor, Elagalibus in 222, who was actually preferred to be called a lady and that, they, that this particular emperor actually tried to have sex reassignment surgery 
you know, in 222 AD. I don't think that really worked really well, but hey, you know, it's a thing that probably worked out. This is the thing that they looked for. You know, you have in Indian culture, you have these, these people called Huras. And in Thailand, you have, you know, the Kathios that all existed hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And in fact, you know, it's really interesting um, that, you know, obviously throughout American indigenous culture, there are so many cult, so many um, indigenous um, tribes and, and, and communities that have this notion of a third gender. And it's actually really, really fascinating because, you know, in 1906, in 1917, in 1936, in 1946, we actually have proof of individuals who had female to male sex reassignment surgeries. You know, and so we actually have had this like notion of, of gender diverse people since, you know, almost the, the beginning of, you know, time essentially. So then the question becomes, how the heck did it become such a controversial and confusing topic? So there's actually a German book called Transsexualism that was written in 1923. And that book by itself uh, is probably the reason why there's so much uh, complicated feelings about the trans community. So that book actually made the, the notion of gender diverse people um, actually into like a psychological disorder. And it wasn't until 1965 when Jay Oliven actually, you know, originated the term transgender and he actually like looked at that and said, actually, this is, a, this is a point of evolution. You know, this is actually not based on someone's sexuality. This is literally the fact that these individuals have different gender representations outside of what is currently typical. And, you know, I love to provide a few examples, additional examples. So this uh, particular image is one of a uh, very early on image in the early 1900s of a two-spirit person from the indigenous community. Um, and, and again, again, you know, showing that, you know, folks have already been, always been here. Then this is, this particular image is actually an image of the, the town of Salinas in the Dominican Republic. So in this town, um, every child is born as a girl or typically most childs are born as what we call, what we call assigned female at birth. But at some point, um, usually around puberty, some of those um, individuals who are assigned female at birth actually become boys, right? And so it's one of the things that scientists have been researching it for years. They don't know exactly why it happens, but the, the, the physical bodies of these children change and their gender representation changes to be the opposite of the gender that they were assigned at birth. And I love this story because this is actually a very common story, but this is one of the most famous stories. So this is a story of Albert Cashier. So Albert Cashier was a person who was assigned female at birth, who decided that they wanted to go fight in the Civil War. I'm not sure why, right? Because fighting is, is not my thing. I'm definitely a lover, not a fighter. But they decided to go through and fight in the Civil War and after the Civil War, they just lived their life as a man for the rest of their, their lives. And it actually wasn't until they uh, got into a car wreck in 1911 that it was discovered that this individual was not born as a man. And in fact, they were so brave in their fighting for the Civil War um, that the, the, their fellow soldiers band together to bury them once they died and provide them this like amazing, amazing tribute because they were like, well, we don't, 
we don't really care what biology he had. All we care about is that he saved our lives, right? So another example of, you know, the fact that people who are gender diverse have lived throughout time. So I'd love for you to take a moment and think about how were you taught about gender as a kid? And the reason I ask this is because, you know, if you were to meet me and, you know, Mark and some others have actually met me, I am the, the number one person who's in a, a dapper suit-like outfit at all times. I got on my loafers. I got on my like amazingly tailored button-down shirt. And like, if you were to meet me, you would go, B is masculine of center. And that has to be how they always were. But that's actually not necessarily true. Like, you know, just like any person, I evolved as time went on. I can tell you, I loved just as much when I was a little kid, being the person who was in the frilly dress on the play playground with my penny loafers outrunning every boy at, you know, um, recess. Like, it was very important to me. My mom would yell at me because, you know, she was like, you're messing up your shoes by, you know, having these races every day at school. And she's like, you know, why don't you just wear different shoes? I was like, I like these shoes, right? So again, it's this like interesting nuance about how, you know, you can be taught as a kid to perform certain aspects of gender. You know, it was very typical for my mother to put me in dresses. I also kind of like dresses because like, I don't know, like, you know, they're comfortable. I mean, who, I mean, look at all the rappers who wear skirts now. You know, sometimes it's very comfortable to have a skirt or a dress on, right? Um, but at the same time, I also even knew as a child that I was not typical because of how I like to, you know, fight with the boys. I like to do all these other types of things. So the way I perform my gender was very complex. And even to this day, it's very complex. My wife is six foot tall, Amazon. And I told her, I tell her every single day, I was like, the reason I married you is because you're handy and you can get things off the top shelf. I do not, I do not fix things. I do not build things. I will make the cocktails, right? We don't have to worry about performing gender in our household. So then let's talk about what these attributes look like. So what we've really kind of come down to in society is that if you're male, you know, people tell you like you're man, your manliness, you have a chest. If you're female, you have a woman, you're a woman, your womanliness, you have breasts. But the reality is, is that the actual WHO organization, so the World Health Organization, actually tells us at the very minimum, we actually are more like male, female, and intersex, right? And so male, you're XY, female, you're XX. You know, if you're intersex, you'd be XYY, XXY, XXX, XO. We could be a lot of different things. And then my alma mater, so I went to Northwestern University, so I have to call them out. Um, you know, it was a great experience for me. Actually has this other diagram of what they kind of call the, the gender diverse community. So there are these notions of masculinity. And again, I, I describe myself as masculine of center. And there's also these, like, these ideas of femininity. And then you have these people who are both. So on the masculine side, you can have a transgender man. You know, you can have a butch, you can have a stud, you can have drag king. On the feminine side, you can have, you know, um, a high femme, a lipstick lesbian, a cisgender woman, a drag queen. And then under both, you have gender nonconforming, androgynous, genderqueer, um, agender, all of these other types of gender identities. And again, it goes into that picture of the fact that, you know, 
there's 25 or more different gender identities that we know of in this exact moment. And the way that we start, to, if you start actually mapping them out, it actually makes a lot of sense, right? Because I think all of us have met someone where you're like, hmm, that person definitely does not perform gender in the way that I do, but they're awesome, right? So it's a little bit of that, that interesting context there. And so then there's this other idea. So like one of the things that I always like to remind people is that even within gender diverse communities, even though it might feel like gender diverse communities or people who are part of gender diverse communities are different than you, there's still that idea of intersectionality. So intersectionality is a concept originated by Kimberly Crenshaw, which essentially says that there are a lot of different aspects of a human that allow them to exist in the world. And in fact, if you look at my gender, uh, my intersectionality, um, you know, I identify as a lesbian. I identify as non-binary, I identify as black, I identify as transgender, I identify as Southern, the shrimp is for Southern fried because uh, I love Southern fried food. I was there this weekend and I, I literally will be detoxing for the next week from all the fried food I had. Um, I also identify as someone who's married and I also identify as a sneakerhead. So if you're thinking about those ideas of intersectionality, when you're actually starting to think about, okay, how do I engage someone from a gender diverse community? You know, if you don't understand the gender diverse part of it, maybe you understand that they went to the same university as you. Maybe they're from the same town as you. Maybe, you know, they like the same food as you. So there's always these other aspects of people's personalities that allow you this opportunity to connect with them, to understand them better. So you can start your journey into allyship. And so having said that, what is an ally? So this is the textbook definition of an ally. So it says it's an active, consistent, and arduous practice of unlearning and reevaluating in which a person in a position of privilege and power seeks to operate in solidarity with a marginalized group. So the first thing I wanna say here is that I also have to, have to practice being an ally, right? So like I'm, I am now a person, especially working in tech, especially working in the type of tech that I do, I have more economic ability. I have more social capital than many people who I, you know, who I am friends with. And so this is something that happens to everyone. Everyone has some sense of, of allyship that they need to participate in practice at a given time. And so it's a, it's a responsibility that we all have to, to unlearn and to reevaluate, especially part of this allyship. Secondly, allyship is not an identity. You know, it's a lifelong process of building relationships based on trust, consistency, and accountability with marginalized individuals and or groups of people. So this is one of the things that I hear all the time, like, you know, especially for people who are just, you know, who aren't really internalizing what it means to be an ally. The first thing they'll say is, I'm an ally. And I'm like, okay, cool. But who told you you were an ally? I need to see the document or the, the text or the video that someone said you were an ally, because until I see that, I can't believe you, right? Because someone else has to give you that. You know, it's just like earning that, that promotion, right? Like you can only be an ally of someone else who is an expert at this thing, who's that, that, that person gives you that title. Um, and so again, it's not self-defined. You know, one of the greatest things that can happen in my life, so one of the, the groups of individuals that I'm really working to be a great ally to are, are uh, neurodivergent people, right? Um, it's something that's super important to me. I work in tech. I work with a lot of people who are on the various drums of, you know, being of, of uh, autism, of ADHD, and all these other types of um, classifications. 
And so one of the things I love is when I can be that person who goes, hey, you weren't really giving X person enough credit because you don't really understand the nuance of their neurodiversity. Um, let me explain what they were trying to say and then let's work together to kind of accommodate them. Um, and so that's like, and so, you know, having people say, B, you helped me really like, thank you so much for being my advocate there because they really weren't understanding what I was doing. And so it's also important when you're doing, when you're trying to be an ally, to be intentional in how you frame the work you do. So for instance, you know, you, you can use language like we are showing support for, or we are showing our commitment to ending a system of oppression by, or we're, we're using our privilege to help by, right? Like that type of language is very different. Um, you know, things that you should never say, um, my friend is blah, so this is why I know about this. Like, you know, you don't actually, you don't necessarily know, you're not that human, you don't know exactly what you're doing. But being able to say like, you know, one of my friends is a part of this, this, this diverse group. And as a part of that, I have learned a lot. And this is what I've been doing in my practice to actually help be an ally to that group of people is the type of terminology that you should be using. So uh, allyship in action. So it's really, really corny to say this, but if you see something, say something. It is actually so important. Um, I, I can't tell you, so my pronouns again are they, them, theirs. And it's been so great for me and my current company, especially where, you know, my peers, my manager, my directors, my VPs have literally stopped a meeting to go, hey, by the way, these pronouns are they, them, theirs. You just misgendered them, right? That type of allyship is exactly what you should be doing. And it's more representative of the type of world and the type of community that actually would, 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 would be great for a diverse person. You have to also challenge those around you. Um, like I said in that, that previous example, you know, I, I have a lot of neurodivergent colleagues and I also have a lot of not neurodivergent colleagues. And so it's very important for a person like me who understands or who is working to understand the, the nuances there to actually say, hey, it's not okay for you to be to prejudge or dismiss that person just because they're different than you. You know, you need to give them, you need to take some time to think about that and think about what they said and, and actually provide them feedback and context so they can be successful as well. And then speak up in front of those you wish to be an ally to. Um, this is something that's super important. I can't tell you, when I first um, you know, came out as, as trans non-binary, you know, people would be like, oh, by the way, like I did reach out to Edward. I know he said the wrong thing, but like whatever. And I'm like, yeah, but in the meeting, you didn't say anything. So no one knows that, that you told Edward that that's not actually the principles that we have at our company. And so, you know, the next time this happens, like they're going to make the mistake and they're going to think it's okay because no one else said something. So it's super important to speak up in front of other people, um, you know, and, and, and that's, that's great not only for the, the community, your organization as a whole in your community, it's also great for that person. I can't tell you, like literally it gives me, a, like it gives supercharges me to have someone um, show their allyship to me in real time. And then continue to be an ally even when it's hard. Um, this is like super, super important. So one of the, the things that I do at, at my current company is I'm also the lead of Trans Star. So tr Trans Stars are trans employee resource group. And it's really interesting because again, I'm trans non-binary. So I don't really know anything about what it means to be a trans woman or to be a, a trans man or to be a gender or any of that. And so sometimes, you know, one of the trans women will come up to me and say something that like, you know, 
hey, the insurance benefits isn't doing this thing and blah, 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 blah. And I actually have to go over there and explain like, this is not okay, this is not happening. And, and it, you know, it took me like six months for the last thing that happened to actually help get that, that benefit covered. But it is, you know, and it was very frustrating, but it was something I had to do because I want to be a great ally to all of my colleagues. Um, and especially, you know, my colleagues who are, you know, unjustly suffering just because of a policy. So how do you prepare a seat at the table? So this is the part that I think is super important because we're all business people here and we're trying to think about how can we make our business better? And we know that diverse companies, like every statistic tells us, diverse companies are more successful companies. So first and foremost, um, pronouns and signatures don't count. I can't tell you how many times someone has been like, oh yeah, like I'm, I'm doing great. Like I put pronouns in my signature and I'm just like, well, first of all, like that's cute, but that's, that's literally like beyond the most basic level of things that you can do. So ERGs, so employee resource groups are helpful, but only when they are well-funded with advocates and leadership. So it's great to create like employee resource groups or some kind of organization within your organization that advocates for different types of people but you actually have to make sure that there are leaders within the organization who are going to support those ERGs and help them be successful. Then the next thing is you have to make sure that once the employees are there, that they have equal opportunities. So this is one of the things that I think is kind of an interesting nuance because, you know, it's just the same phenomenon that happens in the Black community, for instance. Um, you know, whenever you are actually inviting people into the door, if you have not done that work and due diligence to understand what your own blind spots are, you know, you may end up with a situation where those people feel like they're not being valued. They don't have the same opportunities. They don't get promotions, things like that. And so they end up leaving anyway. And I know this has been my actual experience where, you know, I worked at a company where, you know, they loved me. They thought it was great. And then one of the senior directors took me to the side and said, hey, just so you know, you're never probably going to get promoted here because like a lot of people are uncomfortable with the fact that you're different. And I was like, thank you for giving me that context. I'm gonna leave, right? But it was the actual true story of something that happened to me. So ensure all the leaders in the company understand the importance of getting it right. So that again, this goes back to this idea, um, even with what Asia was talking about, which is this idea of alignment, right? How can you have a company that's successful if there's misalignment in any aspect of the business. And so if you want to be great allies in a place that, uh, you know, ensures that, that, you know, people feel comfortable working for you, that's another one of those aspects. In addition to knowing what KPIs that you want or what ROI you need, you also have to understand what kind of organization and community that you're going to be creating for your, your, your employees as a whole. Ensure job descriptions and career sites make clear support for diverse people. I can't tell you how many times I look at a job description and I'm just like, okay, great. You want me to do all this stuff, but it like I just I did some digging. Your benefits don't cover anything that I need, and you don't even have like a place for me to like reach out if something doesn't work out. I'm not interested in that company. Um, so again, it's it's a little nuanced type thing, but it's super important. And then do your research and your policies and health plans cover gender diverse people. Um, I've been to so many companies where. They just don't. Um, in fact, my former company, Apple, I was very surprised at what they didn't cover. And I spent you know, the majority of my time at Apple actually um, working with the benefits team to update their benefits to actually cover um, gender diverse people because they really didn't cover them at all. 
So then lastly, why is this all important? So the percentage of people who identify as LGBTQ by age group is 12%. Um, the, I, if you break down that group of people, 18 and for 18 to 34 year olds, it's 20%. For 35 to 51 year olds, it's 12%. For 52 to 71 year olds, it's 7%. And for 72 plus, it's 5%. And so for the majority of us, that 18 to 34 group, that's the group that we're trying to recruit or hire or who's gonna be the future of our business. And so the fact that 20% of this generation of people identifies LGBTQ means that it's kind of our responsibility to ensure our companies are ready for them because they're not gonna work for us, right? And we need that talent to be able to move forward and be successful in what we're gonna do. And so then lastly, um, so I gave you 30 minutes of all of that and I'm just gonna say, gender is given too much importance. We should be able to see humans just as humans. It's my favorite quote. And in fact, if you listen to me talk like 99% of the time, I just call people humans. I'm like, you're a good human or you're a bad human. That's all I need to know about you. I don't need to know anything else about you besides that. Um, but it's a really good way to think about it. So like, if you can, if nothing else, you could take yourself out of that spectrum of how does this person relate to me? And instead think this person is just a human and I'm just a human and how can we work together? So thank you so much for that, folks. Great. Uh, so thank you. I yeah, don't really know where to, to uh, so much, so much to uh, take on board. But uh, let's, I, I guess, open open this up to um, uh, immediate questions because we didn't really get a or we didn't get a chance to have any first questions. Can I? Th Thomas, yeah, sure. Oh, Delphi raised is... her hand politely. Delphi, you can go. Delphi. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I can go next. Okay. I thought this was really good. I love the history. I really liked the, the way these things were defined. I thought this was really, really good. Um, I'm, ju I'm just thinking, so I grew up in quite a conservative background in Central Europe, and there are lots of people who are finding this a little bit you know, like imposed on them, like you need to take, you need to think about all this stuff. Uh, you, and it feels kind of to a lot of conservative people that this is like pushed on them very like actively, aggressively, you know, like, like oh, you just misgendered someone, you know, and, and it just feels like harsh, like uh, when you look at from that, that single standpoint. So I wonder how to connect with this kind of people better like what if i like i also employ a couple conservative people and i'm just trying to figure out how do i bridge and really kind of like get this to them nicely because a lot of these things when, when we talk about it I, it just keeps feeling like i keep imposing something on these people yeah, so first and foremost, I grew up in a very conservative background too. So I'm from Mississippi, which in the United States is like the super soft, right? So this is these are the people who don't really believe in science, who believe in the church, and my dad is a minister. So like, I, I totally get what you're saying. Um, so first and foremost, I don't think, so one of the things I think that people struggle with is trying to change people's minds, right? Like, so the move is, is like, oh, you're wrong. I need to change your mind. So instead, I like to focus on, hey, 
you don't have to, you don't have to be perfect at this. Like, that's the first thing I tell people. You do not have to be perfect because uh, the idea of perfection is where shame and fear come from. And you don't want to trigger shame and fear for individuals, right? Because if you do that, that's when they like start curling up as a turtle. They don't listen to you. They don't really acknowledge what you're trying to say. So instead, what I really like to focus on is saying, hey, look at this person in front of you. This person in front of you is saying, you know, they are non-binary. They want you to use they, them, theirs. Or this is a person who is a trans woman or trans man who is changing their pronouns from he, he, him to she, her, or vice versa. And you don't, you don't have to believe that. You don't have to understand that. But just like you would say, you would open the door for a pregnant woman, right, who has too many groceries in their hand. Why wouldn't you do the same thing and be polite to this person? Right. So I like to start from there. Right. Like, you know, so start there and get them acclimated to this is about being respectful and courteous, because even from conservative communities, we usually like to be respectful and courteous of other people. Um, and then after that, you can start getting into the other things. And then and again, none of this is, is actually uh, being imposed on you. This is about being a good, good, you know, you know, courteous human. Um, which many of us care about, right? We don't want to be, you know, seen as jerks or jackasses or anything like that, right? Um, and that's usually where I start from, especially because like even I was like, like I mentioned, I was at home this past weekend and I can't tell you how many people came up to me. They were like, B, we know we're supposed to be doing this, but I literally just don't get it. And I was just like, I understand that you don't get it, but this, you should do this because, when you do this, it makes me feel great, right? This makes me feel like a whole human and one less thing I have to fight. And that's a really good way to kind of help people start that journey on understanding because it starts there and then eventually they get curious because they're just like, oh, well, that wasn't that hard to be nice. So let me go look at a little bit more and, and figure out like other things that I should be thinking about. Yeah, I really like that. So it's much less about like, I lash out at you and shame you if you don't do it. It's much more like, like, oh, you'll just make me feel great. And I'll thank you very nicely for it. Thanks. Exactly. Yeah, I really like it. Thanks. Uh, thank you for the, um, for the talk. I, I was just curious, do you think that um, there should be like a a bridge between, for example, people that just know about gender or they like, should people explain, like, should there be like, um, like how can we help if we are from, for example, this, how do we introduce the, the subject to people that don't know about it? Because in, in my experience, I've read about trans and, and non-binary. It's like a super interesting topic, but it's like very steep to start introducing yourself in that subject if you like if you don't know anything about it. Do you think that we could help by kind of introducing people to it? I don't know if the question is like. Do you, in what context are you talking about? Are you talking about like in a professional or are you talking about in a personal? At work. At work. Oh yeah, so I like to come up with statistics about who's going to be applying for jobs, right? So usually how I would start is, is saying, hey folks, like, you know, um, I'm thinking about how many roles we have to fill this year and what those people may look like. 
And so I wanted to mention the fact that we might actually, you know, be getting our first gender diverse people or, or there might be gender diverse people who are going to apply. And so I would love to spend some time like educating a few of you, especially the people who are going to be interviewing people to think about how to make people comfortable. Because if we don't figure this out before someone gets here, we could end up with a bad reputation because we didn't do a good job. And, and the reason, I, and this example, I think is very, very important because there's this company I worked at Sprout Social and Sprout Social, they, they had trained every single one of their interviewers and hiring managers on how to be great interviewers for gender diverse people. So as soon as I came in, the, the receptionist asked me, you know, oh, you know, we noticed that we didn't, you didn't fill out your pronouns. <laughs> Excuse me. We noticed that you didn't fill out your pronouns. We were just wondering what, what, you know, do you have alternative pronouns? I was like, oh yeah, I do. My pronouns are they and theirs. And she happened to make sure every single person knew beforehand. You know, when uh, I got a tour of the office, the person who gave me the tour was like, oh, by the way, that's our, our, our gender neutral bathroom. Then, you know, after I got into, you know, a, a, a a space, you know, every single one of those people knew which pronouns to use and also came up with interesting, like personal questions. Cause you know, part of interviewing process is that you want to have something personal that you can talk to someone about. And so for instance, you know, they knew they were like, Oh, how's your significant other? And the person who interviewed me afterwards, like, well, when we found out that you were non-binary, we weren't sure if you might be married to a man or woman or someone who's non-binary. And so, like, I wanted to make sure I, I asked the question that was inclusive of all of your experiences. And so it just becomes a part of the business, right? Like, this is just a part of the strategy to have a successful business by creating an experience for those folks that is is, is tailor-made to them, right? Um, otherwise, you're going to end up in a situation where I actually interviewed with a company like two years ago. And so again, I'm Massive Center. I wear a full suit. Like my suit is popping when I go on interviews. And this guy who interviewed me goes, oh, so how's your husband? And I was just like, just because I am, I was born a female does not mean I have a husband. Like how far off of like, like how far off the reservation do you must, must you be that that was the first question that you think about that, right? Um, um, so so that is, that's, that's part of this. So it's about business value. Right. So if you're in a workplace, it's always start with business value. Um, and then separately, obviously, that's that's about recruiting people. But then on the second part of that, depending on your business, you got gender diverse people, too. Um, I can't tell you how many times I have sent in feedback on forms and documents and things like that, saying your form sucks. Like, literally, this is not one like half the companies who collect gender. I have no idea why they collect gender because it, it literally doesn't apply. Um, secondly, you know, it's it's very limited. And I'm like, if you really do need this information to personalize something for me, your 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 information doesn't work, right? And so you can actually turn off a lot of people because of that. And you know, that's the other part of this is like, you know, are you actually generating, you know, revenue? Or are you losing revenue because of the lack of diverse thought when it comes to the different ways that people um, participate in gender. And I should also say, you know, there's also like people who have gender diverse identities who look and, 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 and live in exactly the way that you would expect them to live based on their assigned gender at birth, right? You know, I have a colleague, you know, you know, they go by she, they pronouns. And one of the most beautiful, like feminine women I've ever met in my entire life. But if you have a form that just says female or male, they will, they will literally not do any business with you, period. Like 100%, they're done with you. 
Um, so that's like, that's the complexity of this, right? It's about proactively thinking about either A, how is this gonna hurt your ability to recruit and retain talent? Or B, how is this gonna hurt your ability to create, you know, maintain or create revenue and create an experience that people wanna work with your company? Thank you. Also, Nick, your question. So Nick, so Sprout Social is a very interesting company. So basically Sprout Social, let's see, I, I wanna say, you know, they've been around for 10 or 15 years. And just from the very beginning, they wanted to be a company that was great with DEI topics. And as they continued to grow their DEI practice, they continued to go like, so obviously it started off with, you know, race, ethnicity is one of the main things they wanted to focus on. And then it was about gender. And then it became about, well, you know, we have gender, but what's gender diverse? What's LGBTQ plus and things like that. So they're just like, they're just one of those companies that that, that was always a part of their mission, was a part of the, the doing good part was part of their mission in addition to the making the money. And honestly, it, it worked out for them because they went public early last year and they already have a $5 billion market cap. Like they've exceeded every expectation. So, you know, there's a part of me that thinks that it's probably because they did such a good job of thinking about how they could help the world and then, and then built products that looked like that and, and people really enjoyed it. That's incredible. Uh, for, for companies that maybe are, are earlier on their path towards this, um, have you seen, um, you know, what, what, what was the spark that got them moving forward on these, the, the DEI conversations? And thank you for the, the answer, B. Yeah, it's actually really funny to me because like, so I, you know, so I currently work at Netflix and actually Netflix only really started hiring like their, their entire DEI organization three years ago. So technically they would, you, you would consider them to be earlier on their path than, you know, Sprout Social because Sprout Social started off with that. And one of the things that I think interesting about Netflix is that one of the core values of Netflix that they started springing up was this idea of entertaining the world. And so as a part of this idea of entertaining the world, it just became more readily apparent that they actually didn't have enough context or diversity to actually do that. And then especially as the company continues to push internationally, they have to have more people who are competent in that area. Because like, for instance, in most of, in, in many areas of Europe, you actually have to create content that is created in Europe, right? But how can you have an American executive who has no context on what France likes or what Italy likes or what Turkey likes, you know, you, you have to have that type of that that type of diversity in your, your talent pool. And then once you have that talent, it's like, oh, wait, but now our culture may not fit the culture of, you know, the individual who's there. So how do you actually mesh these points? And that's when DEI became one of the huge points of Netflix. So it goes to this idea of, again, it, it's about this idea of how do you create an environment where anyone can be successful in your organization, because ultimately your organization is gonna be appealing to so many different types of people who are probably outside of the paradigm of what you started with, right? Even if I started a company right now, the only things that I know a lot about are being black, being trans non-binary, being Southern and being a product manager. So those are the things I'm an expert in. You know, I'm not an expert in a whole bunch of other stuff, right? Like everything else, I have to figure that stuff out. And so I need to hire a whole bunch of people who don't look like me, who don't love like me, who don't have my background in order to augment that so that I can be more successful too. Let's see, Mary Lauren. So 
It's suggested making sure that ERG groups are well funded and have representative statement. And leadership can give some examples of Okay. Yeah, so um, actually, I can use Netflix again. So Netflix is kind of interesting because one, Netflix is kind of willy-nilly about their budget anyway. But one of the things that's interesting about Netflix is, is that they made a conscious decision to allocate every ERG a certain budget to cre create events and opportunities, learning opportunities, bring speakers in and things like that for their ERGs. And also as a part of that, the ERGs bring in those speakers who then speak to the whole company, right? So that the company learns more about that particular group or how to be an ally to that particular group. So I think that's like super important because I've also been at like ERGs like ER at cars.com where there was no budget whatsoever. Like you had to like legitimately beg to like, you know, say, hey, like we would just like to even have a, a meeting room, right? You know, like you had to actually beg for that. And we were meeting after hours, right? So like, it just didn't really feel like they actually cared from that perspective. And then secondly, every ERG should be matched up with some kind of executive who actually has the ability to move something forward. So for instance, you know, at Netflix, I'm, I'm the ERG leader for Black Ed. I'm also the ERG leader for Transstar. And both of those ERGs have at least two VPs who are assigned to them. And they're, they're different, they're, they have different, you know, backgrounds completely. And, you know, for instance, with uh, the Transstar yeah, VP, one of the, the VPs is actually um, an HR person because HR and benefits are one of the biggest issues that, that, that challenge trans communities. And so it's important that we have an advocate who's actually in benefits, who can actually help us like explain to them what the issue is. For Black At, um, the, the main areas are content and legal and what's the third one? Yeah, no, content and legal are the two. That, that, so we have four VPs over there. And so, and again, content and legal are two of the things that you know, Black At community cares most about because you know, um, making sure people get good contracts like, you know, we want to make sure that creators are being treated equally. And then also that we tell stories that represent Black people, right? So you want to make sure that there's people who have the ability to understand what the challenges are in that community and then goes out to the rest of the leadership team and goes, hey, this thing sucks. We have to fix it, right? And that's the thing that, that's super important. Like, that's exactly what happens with my ERD. The benefit stuff that's happened um, you know, for instance, you know, Netflix used to record all of our um, pregnancy information as male and female. So like, you're male, you took this much time off, you're female, you took this much time off. That's actually not true. We actually have trans males who have given birth at Netflix. So if you just put male, and that person has male, like that's not actually representative at all of this. So, you know, we actually changed all those terms to gestational versus non-gestational parent. Um, we also had like added in this idea of like surrogates, surrogacy and things like that. And the great thing about that is it completely makes our data better too, right? Because our data now actually represents exactly what's going on with the humans that work at our company and how they, they, they use our benefits, right? So that, that type of thing. So I'm, I'm really talking about the fact that, you know, there needs to be economic power. I'm not saying that everyone has to give every ERG like $100,000. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that you need to like come up with a number that you feel comfortable with to allow them to actually create opportunities for them to impact the business, right? Because like, you know, the speakers that I bring in for Transstar and Black Ed, I can't tell you how many times that afterwards, like people, especially our allies who join, they're just like, oh my gosh, like I learned so much. Like, I don't even know if y'all learned from them, but like, this was such a great experience for me. This was so impactful for me. This was so helpful. 
And then secondly, making sure that there are leaders who really believe and who are bought in, who will support those organizations so they can be successful and advocate for what they need um, in the business. Thank you. Kyle mm-hmm. So it says, could you, sorry. Yeah, so it says, could you please explain a bit about what you said about job postings and the mistakes you see in them? So first and foremost, obviously a job description has to be complete and explain what the job is, but let's put that to the side. On the career site, on the job description, it should have some idea about what your values are, about you know being like accepting diverse people, what 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 benefits you have, things like that. So, for instance, I love, and I'm trying to see actually. Let me see if I can find find a good one real quick. But um, I love ones that are like, hey, we believe in blah 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 blah, and usually it's something like we believe in. Um, DEI, we believe in supporting different people. We believe in blah, 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 blah. Um, and then we also have these benefits to support those beliefs, right? Like, so it's, it's usually pretty like straightforward that, you know, it's like, you come here, we'll do all this other stuff to make sure that you're taken care of. Um, blah, 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 blah. I'm trying to find, yeah, so like, I'm using Sprout Socials because it's the one that I know is up to date right now. So Sprout Social has this page on their um, their careers page, which I think is great. And I've gotten a lot of great feedback on that from people. And then if you look at their job descriptions, what, there's a section in every job description that talks about diversity in collaboration, essentially. Right, and I think that that's super important. And they also give very specific, like, especially for diverse people. Um, one of the things that I think that people don't do is set expectations well from job descriptions. And this one, like every single one of Sprouts tells you exactly what you're expected to do within a certain period of time. And so what's great about that, especially from people that I, I hired after I was at Sprout, after these like, job descriptions came up was they were like, well, I knew exactly what I was getting into and I knew what I could hold you accountable to. Because like we often think about what we hold employees accountable to, but it's really great to be able to think about what you what you as an employee can hold your employer accountable to. So because it's so clear, it's so set in their expectations, it just makes you feel very comfortable that you can move forward and be successful at that at that company. And of course like you know the about section on these job descriptions are also great because it tells you hey, like, you know, we, we really, really care about these different aspects. And so this is, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about job descriptions that basically leave no doubt. Like I feel comfortable that, that there's a high likelihood that I'll be safe there because they're already thinking about and explaining to me what types of benefits, what types of things I'm going to have access to so that I know I'm going to be great. And, and, and just so you know, like at, at um, Netflix, I was, I was, I was, pretty satisfied at Apple. I could have stayed at Apple for a couple more years. I would have been fine. But one of the reasons I decided to move to Netflix was because, you know, well, one, my manager was awesome who reached out to me. So he reached out to me one night and he, you know, was like, Hey, I would love to bring you over. But he also was like, Oh, so I, you know, I was looking at your website and things like that. I know that you're trans non binary. So you're part of they, them there. So I was like, yeah. And then he took me over to a black ad event. And then he also connected me with someone from Transstar. And so I had, you know, half a dozen conversations 
before I started with people who either did my job, who, you know, had my same gender identity, who had my same ethnicity, you know, my, my same racial makeup. And so I was so comfortable when they actually gave me the job, you know, even though Netflix has this reputation of firing people, I was like, it's cool. You can fire me. I was like, I'm cool taking that four month severance because you guys have done such a great job of making me feel comfortable that I was like, if I get fired, like, I can't even be mad. Like you guys did such a great job of, of, of really making me feel comfortable here. And so that's the type of, that's the type of like, you know, onboarding, right? Like it's, 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 it's the job posting. It's the, you know, making sure that you show on your career site, how you care about diverse people, and then actually showing up in that interview process like that too, I think is like that combination that's really, really, really important. And when I talk about mistakes, like the mistakes are like super easy. Because you'll go to people's websites, like career sites, and like, they don't say anything about it, right? And if you're a diverse person, like, that's the first thing you look for, you know, because like, it's, to be truthful, it's really just not worth wasting the time to go through interview processes, or even taking a job, and then having to leave like six months up. Like, so that was my experience at cars.com, by the way, I took the job, because I was younger, I didn't really have like that understanding of what it means. And so now I t- teach people all the time, I'm like, don't do it unless you like these are the red flags, but I actually left cars.com six months afterwards because of my experience there, because of the fact that I realized I was not going to be successful there based on my gender identity, based on my, my race. And it was the best decision I ever made because I actually did go to Sprout Social and then Sprout Social kind of like, you know, was my springboard into everything else that I did. But it goes to show that, you know, now me as a much older human than I was at that time, I get to coach people and I tell them all the time, if it doesn't have that, in the job description, if it doesn't have that on the career site, it's a red flag. Chances are it's not going to work out too well for you. Thank you, B. I have a follow-up question, which is uh, something that uh, we struggle with um, because we are a 30-person company. Um, and so we have, uh, you know, we're actually quite proud of, of uh, how welcoming we are. And, uh, and we already have a few uh, people who are uh, uh, you know, LGBT, uh, and um, my concern is that uh, I don't want to tokenize them. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Uh, you know, the, I see Sprout Social has a DEI report. If you make a DEI report with 30 people, it's like you're putting them on the spot. Um, or also the experience you had on Netflix, right? I, mm-hmm. If I ask my gay employees to interview every, you know, that that's that's not their job <laughs> like mm-hmm. uh, in a way yes i'm i'm helping the company but I, i'm also you know uh maybe that person after a while doesn't want to do that so much so help me out here <laughs> for a well, small first company of, setting well first and foremost ask questions right you know so I, again i don't know if you've talked to your employees but I would be very curious if you asked them how they felt about this. Like if they, if you created a DEI report, if you asked them, like for instance, they also don't have to interview. Like they don't have to be the person to interview. They could just be the person who is the point person to be available for questions, right? You know, like they could just be that person and then they don't actually have to interview that person, like be on every interview panel um, because that's another way that this works. But I would, I would ask my employees what they think. Cause like, for instance, at, you know, within my organization, we love to be the people who get featured on stuff and explain why you should come work at Netflix because we love the fact that we feel so safe, right? 
Like, you know, this is an organization that we're passionate about because for many of us, it's the first time we've ever worked at a place that cares about us in this way. And so you might actually be surprised that your your, your employees might actually say, yeah. oh yeah, boss, like, sure, put out that report. Like, I, I know that there's, I'm, a, I'm the only one of this particular category, but I'm okay right. with that because I'm so happy that I get to be here and, and I feel so grateful that this place exists for me. And I would love to bring other people on who have my similar background. I like that approach where it's opt-in. It's not, I'm asking you to do this to help uh, you know, recruit more people, but uh, if you're available and, and want to speak up about this, here's how it will help. I like that a lot. Yeah, it's just like representing your country, right? Like you're like, hey, like if I, you know, a lot of people have national pride, right? And so it's cool to have company pride and, and a lot of people do actually. Um, you'd be pretty surprised once you ask people. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.